Hey there, it's episode 18 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the program is Laura Klein. She's the author of the new book, Build Better Products, and we discuss the evolving role of product managers, how they intersect, overlap, and complement user experience designers. So let's get right to it. Oh, you edit your podcast. That's cool. We don't. Well, the thing is, I say um a lot. I say it so much that I actually know what the waveform looks like now. So I can pull it out <laughs> as I'm working in, in uh, audio editing. Your podcast, however, has something mine does not, which is drink pairings. <laughs> yes. That, we feel that drink pairings are important in um, listening to podcasts because we're funnier when you're drunk. So <laughs> we like to just prepare you. That's, that's that. right. So it's a, it's a bit of sort of preparation for the audience. This is going to be a That's better right. product if you follow these steps. <laughs> so tell me about your, your podcast. You and Kate Rudder, who I used to work with at Adaptive Path way back in the day. You guys do a, a, uh, an interesting podcast. I like it. Oh, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so the beginning of the podcast is kind of funny. We taught um, together a few years back, uh, just for six months or so, at a, a UX intensive course. And when students would graduate, they would often say, oh, we're really going to miss when you two fight in front of us <laughs> about things. Because that's when we learned the most because you would have different opinions. You know, you'd be up there and you'd be talking about whatever, you know, making wireframes and why one might do it or how to prototype or when to prototype. And then we would always sort of fight over that last like five to 10% of things. We agree on most things, but you know, occasionally we'd get a little snippy with each other and they always really enjoyed that. And they said, you know, we're, we're going to miss that. And we said, well, maybe, you know, we should just, we should do a thing where we just, you know, get drunk once a month and, <laughs> you know, fight about stuff in public and maybe we'll record it and make a podcast. This is honestly what happened. And then, um, so we started doing that. And I thought the only people who would ever listen to it would be our ex-students. Uh, but it, uh, other people apparently also enjoy hearing us drink and fight. So, um, And, you know, we try to talk about issues that are important to us and that we think about. And we're right, always right. – every time we finish one, we're always convinced that we're out of topic. <laughs> and then, you know, two weeks later, we have another, we have another topic. I am going to assume since it's – let's see. What time is it in California right now? 11 o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. Um, I, actually, I'm not going to make any assumptions about your, um, your surprise. <laughs> always, right always now. safe. Always <laughs> safe. No, I'm very, very sober right now. Uh, yeah, I have had quite a bit of coffee. Good. The caffeine helps a lot with all of this. I, I appreciate that. So that's good. So uh, what have you been up to recently? I have noticed this interesting shift from just talking about user experience to really moving towards product management, which is something I wanted to talk about a little bit today. But how does that sort of day-to-day manifest itself in what you do? Well, day-to-day, I'm actually the head of product for a small company now. and uh, But I mean, it's a small enough product team that when I say I'm the head of product, what that means is that I make decisions about the product, right, right? right? I mean, everything from the design and, you know, the user, I mean, I've always done, I've always done user research and design. Um, and I've always been the kind of UX person who, uh, really focused on understanding user needs and then making decisions about the product based on the user needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to me, a lot of that includes things like what features should go into the product. I've never been the kind of designer who's just, you know, said, tell me what feature I need to build. And then I'll just figure out how to do it. It was like, part of the user experience is deciding which features go into it. And I've also cared very deeply about things like metrics and usage and quantitative data. Yeah, and yeah. 
at some point, that turns into product management. Mm -hmm. If you're making decisions about features based on qualitative and quantitative input, and you're out there talking to user, I mean, that's kind of what product managers do in a lot of cases. Um, it turns out that the rest of product management, you know, the strategy part, again, I think that that's that should always be informed by the qualitative and quantitative data. Yeah, so yeah. I know the most about that. And um, really what the big difference was when I switched from UX to product management was I started having to write stories for the engineers. Mm. And since I used to be an engineer, I write better stories for the engineers. Oh, so you have a, do you have a, a background in computer science then? That's a kind way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I have a background in programming at best. And uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I was a front end programmer back in the late nineties when that was hard to do. Um, yep. And yep. so, I mean, but I, I mean, I, I have been on engineering teams and I have shipped code. And actually when I was at MVU, um, which is, you know, the original lean startup, I was sort of a combined designer slash engineer. Mm -hmm. I was actually hired as an engineer. And so I was shipping code in a continuous deployment environment with TDD and all that yeah. great stuff. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've lived that. I've done that. All I right. mean, and I've, I still like it. I still sort of build prototypes that way because I enjoy mm -hmm. it. So, all right. So let me, how big is the team that you're on now? Quite small. Um, I have a CTO. I have four engineers, uh, soon to be five. Um, I have part-time visual designer and I occasionally bring on extra UX design help mm -hmm. as I need to. Um, I also have a project manager who uh, helps interface with the rest of the company because yep. it's, it's fantastic. Um, I, I sort of didn't get how useful a project manager mm -hmm. can be until I had a really good one. And now I'm like, oh, I want to take you with me everywhere. <laughs> so is that then the whole company? What's that something like six people altogether? Or? Large, or I mean, for me, it's quite large. It's, you know, the company's over 100 people. Oh, all right. um, but it, it's, a professional, it's a professional services company, and we're sort of adding digital tools to help them scale oh, and make them right. more efficient and make them better at what they do and to, you know, kind of bring them a little bit away from all the manual stuff. I always say that, you know, they've been doing a concierge test for the last nine years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I get it. So it's sort of a, uh, like an in-house in product team in a consulting company. Yeah. 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 And right. we're, yeah. And, and we're, um, we're, we are building things for clients and for, you know, the, we have talent. It's actually going to, it's a, it's a whole platform that they've mm -hmm. just been doing manually. So it's it's not just for internal tools, but Got it. there are some internal tools. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So just for a little bit of context, here's what's been on my mind around this stuff. First of all, like going way back, I've always, to be perfectly honest, been super confused about product management and what what those, who those people were and what they were doing and how they were different from what I did and and all of that seemed baffling to me, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> And, if, and, and so why you are not of, alone, by the no, way. No, <laughs> yeah, that's what it turns out, uh, as, yeah. as in most things. The thing that I take internalized and then, and then feel shameful about, turns out most people feel the same way, and we've just never talked about it. So maybe that's <laughs> a little bit of therapy we can do here on the podcast. Anyway, the thing I came to learn through the years that I did consulting with a bunch of big companies, and then internally at places like Google and Adobe and, and whatnot, was that you can learn a ton about a company based on the background of their product managers. So Google was very much, they were all computer scientists. And for whatever reason, they were not writing code. They were doing 
quote unquote other stuff, right? And generally trying to get the products to ship on time, have some semblance of a product market fit, things like that. But they all had a very technical background. At Adobe, they were all MBAs, all of them, it seemed like. And it took a very different, like they were focused on things like total addressable market and revenue models and uh, churn rates and monthly active users and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but at the same time, what I saw was that product managers were typically responsible for what I had been responsible for as a user experience person, for lack of a better title. It's interesting that, that if I look at my titles over the course of a couple of decades now, that last word has changed I, what comes behind user experience. You know, I was a user experience consultant and then a user experience director at a company and you know and a, then a vice ninja? president were you ever were you ever a ux ninja no i, I should have could have yeah i guess i don't move that quickly so i don't think that would oh. work yeah i'm not stealthy <laughs> but i never took the term designer until actually i got to adobe and that's because i felt like and this this is really telling about where my perceptions of the industry overall were i felt like putting designer in my title would devalue what I did. Like it would make people think, oh, he just does colors and fonts, right? And yeah. I think largely, you know, from the mid nineties to the mid two thousands, that was true. People would think that, oh, you're a designer. Okay, well, you know, go do some wireframes as opposed to being of, st of strategic value to the overall product. And I felt like by the time I got to Adobe uh, and where I was in my career, I could, I could say designer and people would know what that meant. I could say like, I am... Uh, a designer, therefore, I'm in charge of all the decisions that happen in this product, and that worked. But um, that's that's all about context. Anyway, uh, what I wanted to talk about here is this this idea. Maybe uh, so. I had uh, you know Peter Merholtz. Yeah, he was on the program a couple months ago. He has this this theory that uh, user experience as a discipline emerged 15 years ago or so because product managers were doing a crappy job. Yeah, like they, they were like, they were delivering yes, he, products that nobody wanted. And so, yes, I, I believe he gave that talk at, um, in, in front of a bunch of product managers. At, at the mind, the product conference in San Francisco, I think is where he did that. Yes, which I, is, I was, I was there for that. Oh, uh, it's very consistent with Peter's personality and I love him dearly. And I love how he will just step right into that kind of argument. So anyway, I don't know, what do you think of all of that? So it's interesting. I, I was also at that conference um, and it's a great conference and I got to actually talk to a huge number of product managers. And I don't know that I'm a hundred percent on, on Peter's side on this, uh, mostly because <laughs> I don't want all the product managers to hate me. I think the problem is uh, that product management, much like UX means too damn many things. Hmm. And I confirmed this um, when I did a bunch of research for the talk that I was giving there and also for my book where I went out and I just talked to a bunch of people who define themselves as, you know, product managers or UX designers or UX researchers. I talked to a ton of them. And I was like, what do you think product managers do? And what do you think that UX designers do? And there was a tremendous amount of confusion on both sides about what the other group did. Right. But even more than that, there was no agreement across the different companies that I talked to about what even within the, the discipline, like UX people at one company did not think that UX people did the same thing that UX people at another company did. Yeah, like yeah. all of these, it's not just that there's confusion, it's that they are legitimately doing different things at different companies. And within companies, nobody knows what the other one does. And everybody kind of thinks that they do way more things than 
other people think they mm-hmm. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, I talked to some folks at the same companies. So that is the problem. That that is the fundamental problem. Is that really we are all product people, mm. right? We are all building products. We are all. I mean, and I include engineers in here. I include you know a lot of marketing. Um, we are all making product decisions, and hopefully many companies now are doing it in a more collaborative cross-functional way. So it's not so siloed. It's not so much like your group is responsible for making these deliverables and your group is responsible for analyzing this data. And that's just how it is. We're all, but, but on the other hand, I don't think we should all be doing absolutely every single thing. Yeah. It's, that's also not sustainable, right? The designer shouldn't have to make all the decisions and also analyze all of the data necessarily. And, sure, you know, sure, sure. That, that, it gets ridiculous. But that said, I think that in a cross-functional team, it really opens it up more to just kind of go, all right, well, what needs to happen? What are the different roles that need to exist on this team? What are the different, you know, things that people are good at? And that, you know, what's the smartest way to sort of break this up? Because I've certainly been on teams where product managers did a tremendous amount of user research. I think user research is actually the best example of this because this tends to get passed around. There are teams that have explicit user researchers. There are teams where the product manager is doing most or all of it. There are teams where the UX designer is doing most or all of it. There are teams where they all kind of do it together. There are teams where it does not happen, and I think those teams tend to turn out crappy products. Um, But, uh, you know, so, and there are teams where one group is sort of responsible for, or one person or a couple of people are responsible for sort of doing the research, conducting the research, and the whole team is responsible for synthesizing the research together. So all these different kinds of models, and I think that depending on your team, many of those models except for the one where you don't do the user research, many of those models work just fine Hmm. and they can help you turn out a really good product. And that, I mean, I'd much rather have, you know, a great user researcher on a team if the product manager doesn't have any experience talking to users and doesn't know how to run studies and doesn't know how to get good feedback. On the other hand, I'd really like to have the people who are making product decisions heavily involved in user research. So I've tried to stop thinking so definitively about, the product manager is responsible for X and the UX designer is responsible for Y always and forever because it's just not true. There are UX designers who do lean more heavily visual, right? Like they, they are more about the UI and they don't do a lot of user research. And that's fine if you pair them with a product manager who is very customer focused. Part of the confusion, I think, really comes out of the fact that a lot of product managers at, you know, like big you know, CPG, the consumer products companies, you know, oh, toothpaste right. yeah. and that kind yeah. of thing, right? They're all MBAs because they really are address or they're pre-MBAs, right? They're, they are addressing things like you said, total market size and brand and they're, they're more sort of marketing product managers, really. Uh-huh. They're not necessarily making big decisions about the features of the toothpaste, yeah, the, there's, they're not doing a lot of chemistry is what you're saying, right? Yeah, it's not. there's not so much like the, like, what is this toothpaste value proposition? I mean, there is a little bit like, what is its value proposition uh, as opposed to all the other toothpaste yeah, d- on the market? Differentiation, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. but right, right it's, granted. It's real, different than, it's real different than making, you know, a, a, an app or, a phys, you know, an Internet of Things product, right? You know, like anything that has 
lots of features and a really different business model and a really di- like this is right. different than making a commodity product that we all kind of know that we need to be based. There's a there's a continuum and you can label that continuum right. like innovation, right? And you have <laughs> literally toothpaste on one end and the innovation is like there's more colors in the tube now, right? <laughs> and then on the other end, you have self-driving cars. Let's right. So yeah. I, I can see that spectrum of responsibilities, product managers having very, very different roles. Totally get yeah. that. How is that even the same job? Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and that's interesting. That's why I found it so interesting at Adobe where it was like, well, aren't we in the more, uh, the, on the more innovative end of the spectrum, yet it's a very well-established business with very well-established brands. And inside of that, there's a lot of innovation happening, but the job of the product manager is to optimize what's been happening, which you could say like in the toothpaste business, it's only optimization, right? That's all they're sort of doing. What we're really talking about here is that there are two kinds of different things. There's the complexity of the product mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, a, you know, a self-driving car has a lot of different features and moving parts and might need this and it might not need this. And you have to manage the sort of software development process and also the hardware. Like it is a very complex product, right? Toothpaste, maybe not so much, or it may have been, you know, complex when it first came out, but now it's pretty well understood. Right. Um, and then there's also sort of the understoodness. That's not the right word, but um, there's the, the, the knowledge of the business model, right? right? We all know what the business model is for toothpaste. 100%. Like, we're good on that. Yep. We kind of know what the business model for self-driving cars is now, but, you know, five years ago, we maybe didn't. I, I actually, I don't think we do. I mean, I think we're good. Okay. Like, yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a good argument to be made that we're going to move into sort of post-ownership with, with cars and that it's all services. How does Ford respond to that? Mm-hmm. The point is, there's so many big question marks there. Yeah. When, when you're talking about a pure technology, you know, something new comes out, like voice recognition in the last, you know, five, 10 years has just taken off tremendously, right? right? So now we have voice recognition and voice understanding as sort of a pure technology or, you know, things like AI or machine learning, but they're sort of like, oh, these are really getting pretty good now. Yeah. We really don't know the business model for those yet. Right. Like, and right. there could be dozens of them, right? There'd be hundreds of them. We think it could change everything or it could do really nothing. Yeah. That's an entirely different management process than selling toothpaste or even sort of that middle ground one, you know, like apps or, you know, like a productivity app, right? Or a CRM system where, you know, we kind of know the business model, but there are a lot of moving parts and it's still hard. And there are a lot of different kinds of features and different kinds of users that we could optimize for. And so you just need different skills to manage that process. And I think that UX designers are certainly more useful on the more complex products, but product management differs tremendously on that spectrum. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, 
If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. The reason this has been sort of kicking around with me is because I keep having the same conversation over and over again. And so I spend a ton of my time now talking to the founders and CEOs of relatively new companies. Mm -hmm. And there is this life cycle that's, that's really emerging, a strong pattern here, that a company grows to a point in, in the Silicon Valley kind of venture capital world, there's this, these different rounds of funding. You have a seed round, which is the first money in, and then there's an A round and a B round. And there's a bunch of expectations for the size of those rounds and the size of the companies when they get there. As much as I think VCs uh, say that what they do is all about risk, uh, because it's also early and so many of those companies fail, they don't like anything but the technology to be risky. You know, like mm -hmm. everyone needs to yeah. be a Delaware C Corp and you need to do your options this way. Like everything is very, very kind of buttoned down. And so mm -hmm. an A round or a B round, there are these levels, these expectations in the industry for what those look like. The reason I'm saying all of this is because the, the company grows and many of them sort of follow this pattern of, well, we're getting to this point where, you know, the company is between 40 to 60 people. And it's the moment when the CEO realizes that he or she can no longer be the de facto head of product. Yep. Right. Now, this is the person who like came up with the idea, probably like mm -hmm. did all the first sketches, regardless of what their background is. Doesn't yeah. matter if they were. They had the vision. Yeah. They, and they're that, the one with the that's vision. That's where vision and, comes in, right? And their yeah. job is vision. Mm -hmm. in, increasingly, that's all their job is, is to own the vision, articulate the vision, and then ensure that you have a leadership team that can execute on the vision. And then you have to just, the rest of it is all just making sure there's enough money in the bank account. So they come to this point where, oh my God, this vision and leadership team management is 100%, 150% of the available time that I have. I can't do what I used to love, which was make the product. And so I talk to them all the time and they're like, Ah, uh, who is going to do this now? And it almost never mm -hmm. at a 40 person company is somebody that's going to emerge from within the company because yeah. they've been hiring very tactically and importantly to like, you do this and you do this and you do this and there's too much to do and just keep doing it. So they don't have people typically in an early stage startup with lots of years of management experience or product mm -hmm leadership experience. And so they're looking like, is this a head of product management? Is this a peer to the CTO? Is it head of design? And so we've been talking a lot about what is a head of product without mm -hmm. any modifiers behind it or in front of it, just a head of 
product. The person that you are going to now trust and rely to advance the vision of the product, to hire a team to build out this, this sort of second half of an engineering team almost. The question really is, who are these people? Where do you find them? And what exactly do they do? So it's a big thing. But anyway, it gets back to this, what is product management now? And it differs. And I do think that even that job differs depending, and it may differ less if you're seeing a lot of the same types of companies, like if they tend to be these like 40 to 60 person specific tech companies, or even like the tech enabled yeah. companies, you know, where they're also creating. So, so, but I mean, it does depend, right? Like the, the person who's in charge of quote, the product at, you know, a place like, you know, Uber, for example, um, which is really about the service sure. as, yeah. you know, it's, it's not about the app. I mean, the app is the enabler. But yeah. the product is getting me from point A to point B, you yeah. know, much more holistic, cheaply and without getting murdered. Right. right. Yeah. Um, that's, that, I, I see that as basically the service, um, you know, letting me get into cars with strangers yeah. right. safely. So and that would depend. Right. And I think that it also depends, like, on who that CEO is. Is that CEO and X, do they have an engineering background? Do they have a, a sales background? Right. Like, what are they sort of focused on other than just you know, raising money and recruiting right. and building a, a team. What is their sort of, you know, what, what do they, cause there will always, there will always be things that that CEO is not going to give up, <laughs> but uh, it is true that they, that the first person on a brand new product is often a really strong single leader. I'm kind of running into this now, you know, thinking about sort of growing the team and when to grow the team and when to add more product managers and sort of spread things out. And it's like, you know what? Not, Yet, there are too many big decisions that still have to get made. And when you've got a bunch of big decisions um, that have to get made on a brand new product, and brand new product is all about that. It's all about prioritizing and making big decisions oh, yeah. and making all the little, like just, you're like, you have to be a little bit of a control freak to make sure that that all happens right. And it's very hard to do that in a distributed environment, right? It's hard sure. to do that amongst five teams when you're making these enormous decisions that affect the architecture and the, you know, the, the business model. And like you're making all of those decisions at once. Right. Um, it's good if there's one person in charge when you're sort of, when you've got those decisions made and you're adding features and you're doing incremental improvement and incremental innovation. I think at that point you do like, you're fine having a more distributed, you're fine having a few different product managers making decisions independently, communicating with each, you know, you always have to have that really good communication amongst teams, but I think you can support more teams when you have a good base and you sort of know these are my users. This is my product. This is my, this is what we do as a company, right? <laughs> this right. is what our goals are. This is where we're trying to get we all kind of know where we're trying to go and now we can all move toward it a little bit more autonomously yeah so you used a really interesting word there earlier which i want to come back to which is prioritization <laughs> and it, there are two questions honestly in my mind or two ways of framing prioritization which is who decides what to build and who decides how to build it mm -hmm. i think that i think that's one way of looking at this because in my mind uh, at least again my experience young companies early stage they all live or die based on their ability to prioritize. Mm -hmm. And it is my sort of hypothesis for you know a number of years now that user experience and design are a method for figuring out how to build the right product and what that right product is. Yep. And so that's why I take it as inseparable from like head of product, all this product management, all of these decisions we have to make have to come from a UX point of view. It's really telling when you look at it, and this probably comes from my years of consulting to go and like figure out, all right, who's deciding 
what it is that is going to get built. And then what is the process for figuring out how that that feature is going to be built and what it's going to look like and how it's going to work and what are the, the, you know, the features that go into it and all that kind of stuff. They really bleed into each other because the talking about the what and the talking about the how, for me, are inseparable. Yeah, totally. You can have sort of the vision of, yeah, we're going to have a platform where people can like summon cars and cars will come and pick them up. They'll get to where they're going and then they'll pay. At that level, you can sort of separate that what from the how. <laughs> but at some point, the how becomes important and the details matter a lot, which is why it always drove me nuts working with product managers who would dictate features. Yeah. And they would say, oh, it's got to have an onboarding that works like this and is gamified. And I'm like, A, no. And That's right. Did B, you read that in an in-flight magazine? Is that where you got gamified? Yeah. Come on. What are you talking yeah. about? Oh, no, I understand. I, I understand that that is the thing that we are doing now that it is 2010. Um, but... Um, so, but, and, and they would say things like that. And then that is bleeding from a, a what question to a, to a how question. And I just feel like at some point UX and product management are the same thing. They're making decisions at various different levels about what the product is, who the customers are, how it's going to work, how we're going to serve people. And I think it doesn't serve any of us very well to sort of split it up, you know, outside of the the team, yep, the yep. specific team that we're working. And I take yeah. your point, certainly, that the background of the person uh, puts a lot mm -hmm. into it, right? Oh, yeah. But that's not to say that I don't, I don't think that user experience methodologies don't have a lot to inform business models, for that matter. The way, I mean, we spent, oh, a, yeah. spent a ton of time yeah. on this when we were building Typekit, which was a, is essentially a new technology with an existing set of assets and an entirely different business model. It was essentially like what Spotify is doing for music, we were doing for fonts of all things. And to carefully, like very, just dozens and dozens of interviews with designers, as well as with type designers to sort of put that together to say like, what if people didn't own the font? You know, what if there wasn't this sort of ultimate use? You pay a whole mm -hmm. bunch up front and then use it. What if the, it was metered out and things like that? And it was very difficult conversations. And, and we went through all the steps that you would go through in a user experience or service design model and methodology of, you know, talking to people and, and modeling it out and talking about like the emotional response and the, like trying to figure out the pricing itself, like what levels and what are the things that trigger it. And it was as intensive a user experience problem as I had ever solved. And in 90% of the companies that I consulted with previously, the skills that I brought to the table were never considered in conversations about business models. And I agree with you 100% that these skills are incredibly useful for product people and strategy people and all this stuff. What I would say is that you were doing product development correctly. Well, thank you. You were doing it. <laughs> it worked out well, at the end. Well, clearly. Clearly, I am biased on this because that is also how I do product development. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But that doesn't mean that necessarily you need UX designers to be doing that. What it means is that that's something that product managers should know how to do. Right. <laughs> right? Yep. Product managers should know about how to go out and gather information from customers and put that together and understand what it means for the business model. But if you're if you're making business models in some other context, my guess is that you're doing a pretty crappy job. 
of it, which, which is why I think that they're all kind of the same thing at the highest level. Like if, if you're doing product management right, you know a lot of this user experience design stuff. And if you're doing user experience design right, you probably know a lot about how to make business. But like you know about the business model. You know about the metrics. You know how what decisions you've made affect actual end users. Like those are at the, the high level when you get good at this stuff. I think you kind of learn hmm. all of it. I don't Hopefully. Know. I don't that's know. the goal. I don't know. I you think, should. Well, you should, obviously would be the goal, but I don't think whatever turns out to be product management school, you learn ethnographic approaches to asking questions of users to get back the most relevant and unbiased results in qualitative research. Like that's one of the fundamental underpinnings of like most user experience methodologies. And I don't think they teach that at business school. I, I could not agree with you more. And I think it's an enormous mistake. That's so it was interesting because one time I was talking to somebody um, about, you know, we were laughing about, well, 90% of product managers are terrible. Well, 90% of designers are terrible. You know, the, what we do when we get old and bitter, um, <laughs> you know, the thing where, oh, 90% of engineers don't know what they're doing. Yeah, whatever. I'm really starting um, to see how the drink pairings <laughs> sort of fit in with this now. Exactly. I get it. All yeah. right. It's Finally, she looked at me and she said, look, let's just agree that a lot of people don't do this well because it's really hard to do and we don't necessarily have good schools teaching sort of the right way to do this. So given that, let's talk about how it should work. It's the, it's, I, always, I, always, I always like to distinguish between the world in which we live and the world in which we want to live when right. making arguments. And there are a lot of arguments about the world in which we live. Yeah, product managers don't know how to do user research. And UX designers are afraid of metrics and often argue vehemently against knowing how their designs are affecting end users. Sure, sure. Uh, that's, that's reality. That's, that is now. That is the world in which we live. The world in which we might want to live and the world in which I think we would make better products would be one in which the team, at least, as a whole understands how to get the best information from users and understands how to read the metrics and understand the important metrics and to not get distracted by vanity metrics. And the whole team knows about mm. the business strategy and the goal. And um, we all sort of know how to get there. Everybody's not going to be an expert in every single one of those things. I get that. We're dealing with humans, um, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, I think that the team as a whole needs to have all of those abilities. And I do think that somebody's got to know how to do good user research. And the person who's making the decisions, whoever is making the decisions, has to know how to understand users. Mm -hmm. And that's often the product manager in today's world. You know, so so that, that sort of raises two things. What, what you're suggesting, and this is something I've talked about on the podcast a bunch of times, is that most of the decision-making about the what and the how of, of what we're building should be happening with the team as a whole. That it should be yes. happening sort of live like everybody in the room and even, and I've done this many times, right? Fill up a whiteboard with a bunch of potential screens. Do we all agree? And is this possible technically? And does this match what we've heard in user research and all of this happening together in a lo-fi way? And then each person on the team going off uh, individually when they go do their work to document using the skills they know. So engineers are writing code and designers are making interfaces and content people are writing copy and all of this is happening so that we can then assemble it together as it develops. And so what you're talking about is a very real-time collaborative process as opposed to everybody goes off and does their job and hands their work off to the next person, that sort of traditional uh, waterfall style of, of product management. Yeah. The other thing you're talking about is, is frankly having a lot of diverse voices around the table. And we have, you know, yeah. we've talked, and there's a bunch of ways that you can 
interpret that. Diverse in terms of the skills that they bring and the roles that they play, diverse in terms of their background and their role in society and all that kind of stuff, that the more diversity we have around that table, the better the product is going to be. And I think all of that framed up with this core, I, I really like this idea that user research, and that means live humans listening to them and watching them is done probably conducted by one individual who has those user experience techniques of ethnography and anthropology and all of that stuff we've been talking about, but that everybody observes it. This is something that Jared Spool calls exposure hours. How many exposure hours does the entire team have every month to users? And I find that fascinating and incredibly hard to bring into a culture, you know, and to make time for and and everything. But if you think about it, you can like, it's more important than the daily standup. And how many hours a month are you spending on that? Like, it's more important. You have to go see it. You at least need to bring that information to the team. Even if you're not, even if they're not necessarily sitting in, you at least need, like the team needs to understand. A lot of times what happens, I, I'm actually, the funny thing is with the, the designing on the whiteboard ahead of time with the whole team, sometimes I do that. And sometimes I'm less about that because I don't think that's that that amount of collaboration is always completely necessary. <laughs> um, I think there are certain things where you can have a couple of people go off and sort of figure out what needs to happen. What you do need to do then though is when, so for example, when I'm sharing things with engineers um, about, you know, like this is what we're building, like we don't need to make those decisions with literally everybody in the room. There are several right. engineers who are not necessarily interested in doing that and wouldn't necessarily get as much out of it as it would take in the time that they would sit there and do it. But yep. what yep. we do, what we'll, what we'll do a lot of times is I'll say, okay, here's what we want to do. Here's the user outcome that we need, right? And I am completely open to suggestions about technically the best way to do this. And then we will have that conversation at sort of the technical level of like, here's the user goal, yeah. which we've decided based on the user research that we're doing. And I'll say, this is what we're hearing from users. This is how users are um, this is what they want to do. This is why they want to do it. Tell me what my options are. <laughs> and then we'll discuss the options. Um, so at least you need to get the context of the user to the engineers. And I think over time, building that context and building that picture for them just makes them make better decisions in general. Because all of a sudden, like, they know, especially like if you're building something that's kind of complicated or for, you know, it's not a consumer product, right? It's not just something that like anybody can kind of get. It's like, no, no, no. This is the job they're trying to do. Right, and this is how we help them, and you you build the picture of the user for the engineers um, and everybody on your team, right? Over time, I also have to bring in you know legal and marketing, and yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly don't want the engineers in all of the. I mean, or even like the visual designer, right? Like, the, does the visual designer need to sit in on my conversations with legal? Right. Yeah. No. Good point. Um, <laughs> but, but the other side of that coin is, in my experience, bringing a user, again, a user experience process to legal agreements really pays dividends. So it really works. Sales contracts yeah. and biz dev deals and all of that stuff can really benefit from all of that. Well, this, this overall hypothesis that I think designers with a user experience background are fine candidates for starting companies. Yeah. If they are the kind of person that's continuously hungry for learning and can learn like all the intricacies of legal and financing and all of that kind of stuff, then that process that they built their early career on can be just incredibly powerful in, in every aspect of building a company. I have a question for you uh, <laughs> because this is something I always kind of wondered about. I thought, let's, let's, let's play Ask a VC. Um, yeah. My hypothesis has always been that there are certain types of companies and certain types, I would say even certain types of products that are best served by being led by designers. 
And there are other ones that are would be best served by being led by, for example, engineers. And there are probably some that are more sort of sales and marketing. I don't know what those would be. Have you seen that, A? And sure. B, if you have seen that, I mean, is there some sort of framework for how to make those decisions? Oh, that, yeah. Or is it secret? Uh, yeah, right. No. <laughs> Secret VC framework. Yeah. No, look, the just the unbelievable diversity of the number of companies that are being founded means you're exactly right. People don't necessarily need to be engineers or designers or MBAs for that matter to start companies. And that has a lot to do with the fact that venture backed companies have traditionally been about technology and that's less and less so. Um, they are still very much about technology, but not for the sake of technology. It's not like you're investing in a company to go make a cell phone or a computer or a chip fab or, or something like that. You're investing in companies that are going to deliver groceries, right? <laughs> or who knows what? Like Personally, I, personally, I would not invest in those. Well, I mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little techie. I, I like the ones that are, I like the ones that are about uh, that, That's fair enough. <laughs> but it, it's certainly the case that, that now in the middle of the 20 yeah. teens, that every single kind of company there is, is going to either turn into a technology company or be replaced by one. So yeah. that means everything from like, you know, like how, I don't know, let me make something up, how you uh, machine metal and do that kind of stuff, like making those kind of parts and everything. Those are going to be technology companies because robots are going to do that stuff. And yeah. so does a designer need to be the CEO of a company that does that? No, probably somebody with a background in robotics for that matter. And yeah. there is... There's another side to that, though, that I find really interesting, which was that we have now a couple of decades worth of technology companies, especially in the enterprise world, like companies that sell software to other companies that mm -hmm. have never cared at all about user experience. And you can tell. Yeah, well, yeah, because they didn't need to, right? Because they exploited yeah. the fact that they were selling to people who had budget authority who were never going to use the software. Right. So they never, mm -hmm. so it didn't matter. You had to like get the features that that the, the buyer was interested in, not the users and users. Well, I, who cares? We'll just, we'll also buy a, a service contract for training so we can teach them how to use it. But none of that mattered at all until people started using technology in their day-to-day -day lives. And it turns out that using Facebook and Twitter and uh, Amazon and Netflix is a way better experience than all this crap they have at work. And there's this general revolt that has happened. And a lot of startups yeah. have exploited that and said, aha, we can go after that like legacy crappy, I don't know, HR benefits software. And we can do it a lot Gosh. better using what is essentially consumer design and what, which you and I in the industry would call good design because, <laughs> because now, right? Like the, pe would, yeah. the people who are at, uh, they're just honestly, like they're just consumers at work and they want the same yeah. experience. And the companies that provide that then lead to happier employees, which has less attrition. And so HR departments are like, no, CTO, stop buying that crappy software, buy the better software because it makes people happy and they don't quit their jobs. I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but that's... Um... <laughs> no, you totally have it. It's, it's really interesting because I think that in the 90s, the business model was often take something that isn't online and make it online, right? Right, The late 90s, right? And even the early two, up to the sure. early 2000s, right? That was kind of the, that was like, there was still a, it was the wild west, right? It was, there was all this space where it's like, find something that wasn't online yet and make it online. And that was as much as you had to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and now we're at this point where it's sort of like, no, 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 you can do all this stuff online. It's just that now, um, I think with the rise of, of metrics and actually looking at how things are used and what kinds of 
you know, what, what kinds of benefits we're actually getting from these giant multi-million dollar things that we're installing at our companies, we can say, you know, this thing that you're buying isn't giving you the kind of benefits that you would expect from something that costs you so much every year. This other one that is easier to use, it's more intuitive. It doesn't take all the training. It doesn't take all the customization. It just works. It gives you way more bang for your buck. And I think that has helped that transition because honestly, I know a lot of these folks who, you know, buy giant software packages for their companies. They wouldn't buy something just because it was nicer to use, <laughs> but they will buy something if they get benefits because it's nicer to use, right. right? It's nicer to use. So people actually use it and they do the right thing. Yep. Right. Exactly. I, I think what happened with a lot of that other stuff was that people just didn't use it or they got, they've looked for ways to get around it. Right. Yep. You have written a book about making better products, building better products. Is that what it's called? Build, build better products. Build better it's, products. I, my I, apologies. I like to think that it's um, that I'm just shouting at you. Build better products. Comma. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Damn it. Yes. <laughs> no, it's good. I've read through it. And a lot of what we're talking about here, especially the makeup of teams and prioritization and bringing users in and collaborating and all that stuff, very well covered. So, so nice job. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well as a... Um, promo code to get 20% off. You published this with Rosenfeld Media, which makes me happy because Lou Rosenfeld is an old friend of mine. And I love to see all the books that he's doing. You're Laura Klein on Twitter. Send people there. I am Laura Klein on Twitter. Yeah. And um, if you're interested in, you know, hearing me ramble about bourbon and occasional podcast updates, that's, that's where to find it. <laughs> um, users know. Users know is my site. So uh, usersknow.com uh, has most stuff that I do, you can see the podcasts and I occasionally I, blog, although I should clarify that that's often, users know K N O W not like again, <laughs> shouting at somebody yes. users. I've, no, I've, no, I've, I've actually considered buying that domain and setting up a, a contrarian website <laughs> to that's drum up some interest, but really seriously, who's got that kind of time. <laughs> see, see what you can do. You can work on that. Laura, thanks so much for being on the show. This is great. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This was great talking to you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable. Presentable.